This podcast was recorded on June 1st, 2017. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of Double N Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. Double Line has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Okay, welcome to The Sherman Show. This is Jeff Sherman here with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we have an honorary guest who needs no introduction, Mr. Jeffrey Gunlock, Chief Executive Officer of Double Line. Hi, Sherman. Good to be here. Yeah. How are you doing today, Jeffrey? Pretty well. Pretty good day. So we wanted to interview you on The Sherman Show. We've, uh, we've had multiple guests thus far, and uh, we're trying to you know, kind of dig deeper into the inner workings of not only Double Line, but industry professionals. And so... We thought it was time to bring you onto the Sherman Show. Well, maybe one day that'll be a good idea, but it strikes me that you've done a lot of these shows, and uh, people know a lot about me. You just have to pick up Forbes magazine or something, and you'll find the same old stories repeated that people have probably heard more times than they uh, need to, and certainly don't need to hear them again. But people don't know much about you. Uh-oh. So I was thinking maybe the thing to do would be to have maybe a two-way conversation, but... Uh, Maybe tell people a little bit about your background. So uh, is this kind of similar to your tweets recently? Other way around, bro? <laughs> oh, yeah. So that, was the, that we got a lot of likes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, why don't you kick it off today then? Well, how, uh, you know, I have a story that I've told. It's been told many times about how I kind of stumbled uh, wrongly into the investment business. But I don't know if I myself know how you and why you got into the investment business. Why don't you tell that to the listeners? Okay. Well, um, stumbling, I guess, is a is a great descriptor of how I got here as well. Um, I grew up in uh, the central California. I grew up in Bakersfield. Um, my family, kind of working class people. Dad worked many different industries, truck driver, oil fields, very blue collar. My mom was a bookkeeper. And they did everything they could to get me into university, go to college. And so I ended up going to college and uh, cho- went as an undecided major, had no idea what I wanted to do, um, stumbled upon mathematics, um, and I say stumble again, I was always relatively decent at basic mathematics, and um, at the time I really didn't enjoy reading a lot, you know, from English textbooks and, and learning necessarily history at the time, and so uh, it was easier, to be honest with you. Not well, that You were good at it. Yeah, I, I guess that's, that's the way you, li- you think about it. And so I became a math major. I started off as a pure mathematician, kind of like yourself. Um, I took the easy way out over time. I switched to applied math. I uh, got tired of proving all the uh, annals of real analysis and abstract algebra um, and figured I was a lot better at you know, solving analytical problems. And so I switched to applied mathematics and graduated there, didn't really find a job. So I decided straight out of undergrad that I'd go to grad school. And so I entered a Ph.D. program um, in applied mathematics at uh, Florida State University. 
uh, went down there uh, where uh, my background was on the math side was more applied in statistical and, and econometrics, which was rejected pretty vehemently by the folks at Florida State. As econometrics. They, econometrics. Not that they're not good at economics and statistics. However, if you know the situation of where Tallahassee is, their big uh, claim to fame is hurricane analysis, so fluid dynamics. So here I was, uh, you know, a graduate student thrusted into kind of fifth or seventh semester physics, stumbling along, trying to figure out how to do a lot of partial differential equations. And now we're boring the audience. Uh, But the idea here is trying to ultimately model waves and, and hurricane flows to which I had zero interest in. Um, and at the time, this is the late 90s, and there was this prevalence of quantitative finance. You know, there, Obviously, it's been around for many decades before that, but there's this kind of boom of quants, uh, for lack of a better phrase, to Wall Street. And I saw that they were offering a program there um, in financial mathematics, um, to which I was interested, but not really a good reputation at the school at the time for placing folks um, in the business. So I came back to school out here in Los Angeles at Claremont uh, Graduate University, where they had a degree in financial engineering, which is just quant finance. So you, you really had uh, an educational <clears throat> intention then of getting into finance, quite likely, because that's really applied and kind of direct. Whereas what I did is I was stumbling along, as I said earlier, I, I just took math courses because I liked them. And I took philosophy courses because I liked philosophy. And next thing I knew, I had enough courses in each one of them for a degree. It was kind of like Doug Flutie when he was playing for the Bills. He used to say, we don't think about scoring a touchdown. We think about getting one first down after another until we run out of field. Yeah. And so that's kind of what happened, happened to me. You know, Bakersfield, a lot of people probably have misconceptions about Bakersfield. I've only been there once to Bakersfield to give a speech. And one of the things that really surprised me is how much wealth there is yeah. in Bakersfield. Most people think that it's a dusty, you know, cow town maybe with, uh, you know, relatively average, maybe even below average in terms of median income. But some of the people, I gave a speech there, and some of the people that I spoke to were incredibly wealthy, and but very down to earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, one guy was a, a one billionaire, showed up in overalls. Because yeah. he was a carrot farmer. Right. And he's the second biggest carrot farmer in the country or the world. I can't remember which. I think it was the world. And then another guy who wasn't wearing overalls, but he certainly wasn't dressed up a lot. He was the potash producer for something like 40 or 50% of California's potash. And these guys were incredibly wealthy, but very down to earth. It was funny because I had to give a, I have given that same day, I had to give a speech over on the coast in San Luis Obispo. And when you drive from Bakersfield to San Luis Obispo, you go th- through some badlands, really, and a lot of oil fields. That's right. I think it's Chevron, right? Is that the, the, Ar- the Arco is the big one, Atlantic Ridgefield, but Chevron has to be playing. In fact, Chevron, I won a scholarship from Chevron to go to uh, to go to college from them uh, through their engineering program, which is what turned me on to mathematics as well. Yeah, funny so how money gets you involved in certain I had to drive, things. I had to drive from Bakersfield to San Luis Obispo, and we're driving along, and it's it's first of all, I had to ask advice. There were two roads on the map that looked pretty much the same distance and uh, in terms of uh, getting there, and it was like, which one should I take? And one of the guys said, don't take this road, and there was an, it's a number on yeah. it. So don't take this one, take the other one. I said, why? He said, they call that road Blood Alley. Yep. And I said, why is that? And he said, because it's mostly one lane each side, and there's a lot of tractors and trucks, and they go really slow. 
uh, yet uh, you can't really see very well, and so it's uh, basically a double line road. Right. And right. they said there's impatient drivers. They get so tired, they're in a hurry. And so even though it's a double line, they try it, they chance it. And they have a tremendous amount of head-on collisions that are fatal. Yeah. That's why it's called Blood Alley. Mm-hmm. And it's so funny because I told them, and I've relayed this story before, that's actually, as we know, a metaphor for our risk management is that you don't cross the double line on Blood Alley. Right, on Blood Alley. And even, we're yeah. going along. And we, we were there. There weren't a lot of tractors or trucks that day. It was uh, So we were driving along pretty fast. It was like driving my Porsche, and uh, we were going pretty fast. And all of a sudden... I couldn't see anything. It was like a what they used to call a whoop-de-doo in the motocross that mm-hmm. my brother used to race, and where it's like a double bump. Yep. And I I felt like the car almost left the ground. I'm sure it didn't, but it was pretty scary. And I learned later that that was the San Andreas fall. Oh really? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when I growing up, uh, it's very popular for folks in Bakersfield to go over to San Luis Abismo. Pismo Beach is Pismo, another yeah. very uh, very frequent spot by the residents. Um, and my parents always told me because the the trucks that are hauling there, a lot of them haul sugar beets, and so they always call them the sugar beet haulers. That's what my parents use um, because they're paid by the truckload, so they weren't paid by the hour. And so they drive tremendously fast with these, and as you have experienced, it's the ups and downs and also the switchbacks as well. But another thing I think that gives Bakersfield a misconception as well is a lot of people get it confused with the town Baker, which is on the uh, Highway 15 between here and Las Vegas. And Baker is known for having the world's largest thermometer. So I know over over many conversations in my life when I say I'm from Bakersfield, they go, oh, I know that, the place with a thermometer. And then when you explain, no, it's Bakersfield, oh, you're right, you get the Cowtown or, or the Agricultural Center. But uh, you did say there's a lot of wealth there. It is somewhat disparate, but it is a hardworking community. It's a very tight-knit community, and I've always said it's one of the um, largest small towns you'll ever see. Yeah. I, I, I heard uh, one of your first jobs was in Stockton. Yep. Stockton baseball team, right? Stockton Ports. How far is that from Bakersfield? Uh, So it's about 200 miles north of Bakersfield. So when I went to undergraduate, I went to University of Pacific. And so one of my my first actual real job outside of tutoring, which is a way that a lot of us got through school, especially with work study, is uh, I had a friend that worked at the Stockton Ports. And uh, they're a minor league baseball team. And it's called Ports because there's a port at Stockton. It's the port, the port of Stockton, right, on the Delta River. And so um, I was always a big baseball fan growing up. And uh, what was uh, interesting about it is I got a job which I thought was a killer job at the time. I got to run the scoreboard and keep score for the Stockton Ports. And they paid me. They I think, paid for that. I'm, surpri- I'm surprised I can't just get a kid to volunteer. Well, I, that's where they screw up, you know, because what they did is it was $10 a game, which is good money. And all you can eat, which to a college kid is worth almost an infinite amount of money at the time. So um, it's, a, it's a wonder I didn't weigh 300 pounds from all the hot dogs and nachos we did. Uh, but the problem is you have like you know, baseballs in stretches. So you'll get 7, 10, 12 games in a row. So it's, it's literally feast or famine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, Mike in our mailroom played uh, professional baseball. And I heard that you scored one of his minor league games. That's correct. And so we learned that after after Mike came on board. Big Mike, as we like to call him around here. He, he's, uh, he's, he's big and his name's Mike. He's big and his name's Mike. So this is not a conundrum where the guy Tiny is, is the 400-pounder. The uh, but Big Mike, uh, I learned, did that. So we went back and, and looked things. We can find stuff on the on the Internet, too, of those games. And so at the time, uh, he was there. And, and um, 
you know, he was one of the sluggers on the team at the time. So it's just uh, it's it's serendipitous or just kind of coincidental how the how how small the world really is. Yeah, I think Mike still has is still ranked in the top twenty in terms of I think home run hitters for the Milwaukee Brewers minor league team. I think that's the Scott Stockton Ports. It is the Stockton Ports. <laughs> that's exactly right. So. Right, and I know that you're a baseball fan because uh, I think somebody got you some seats from the old Giant Stadium. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So um, you know, for those who had been around in the you know in the earlier years, uh, the, the Candlestick Park uh, shut down. It was replaced uh, uh, by AT and T Park in San Francisco, and the 49ers had still played there for a while. And then once they got their new stadium down in Santa Clara. Uh, I heard they were auctioning them off, and somehow a pair of seats uh, showed up in my office one day, which are still in the plate. And I believe the person I thanked was you, Jeffrey. So yeah, that, it may have been. Yeah. <laughs> so you said you were a math tutor. Did you ever teach math? Yeah, I did teach. Um, so when I was an undergrad, I taught some. I was like a teaching assistant for a statistical course. And then when I went to Florida State, I taught pre-calculus and calculus, specifically on the business side as well, too. So. As you were saying, there's a little bit of affinity for the business world, too. And so um, being a TA, I think, really helped with the job I have today. Because I think about it's not only the work we do in analyzing portfolios and trying to put them together, but it's also being able to communicate those thoughts and ideas. And so teaching, I think, is a, is a very good industry experience because uh, you, you get to get into the psyche of others or how they learn. Some people are visual learners. Some people are aoral. Uh, sometimes you have to explain it in many different facets. And I think the teaching side has helped me in that way, not only explaining to uh, our, call, our, our um, clients and prospects, but more importantly, explain to our colleagues when we're trying to think about solving these puzzles of risk integration and the like. So um, I think, I think, I think you know. uh, being a teacher also helps ultimately with public speaking because you get very comfortable in terms of being in front of a group. And also teaching is, can be repetitious if you're teaching the same subject year after year, but you're sort of ad-libbing at the same time, right? which I think works out. And I guess you're, you're, you're teaching now as a CFA instructor. Yeah, I used to do that. Uh, oh, just the, the jobs, just a, this job is, takes a little bit too much of the time to be able to do that anymore. Uh, but um, I don't believe in the old adage, those who can do and those who can't yeah. teach. Um, I think there's room for both sides. So I've always enjoyed helping people. I think it's a way of giving back what as well. What did you teach as a CFA instructor? Uh, quantitative analysis or quantitative methods. So le- level one, um, I didn't really want to teach level two and three. I liked the level one. Uh, we're getting people interested, showing people what you can do with it, and understanding just these basics, how they lead into portfolio management analysis. And so I, I never really wanted to you know, teach the higher level mm. there because I really liked the interaction there. That and you know, the, the higher at, level is, is what we do at work each day. Yeah. When I was a graduate student at Yale, one of the things that we had to do was call a, a first-year seminar. And what it was is we were supposed to pick a subject, and every week one of us would teach the others, sort of a, one of the chapters in a book or something. And it was, I, I, that was early on. That was like the first week that I was at Yale. Uh, we started that up. And I probably should have known that something uh, wrong was happening because they came in and they said, well, we can vote on what class we want to teach each other. And all seven of us, there were only seven of us in this PhD program, we, we agreed, all of us, it was unanimous that we want to do logic. And the guy said, no, we do Lee algebras here. So it was a seven to zero vote, and it got vetoed by, <laughs> by the advisor. And so we ended up doing Lee algebras. Right. And I, I, when I wanted to do my dissertation on a marriage of a little bit of math and philosophy, they were, they were all gung-ho about it until the day they told me, no, you're going to write a chapter in our next book on Lee algebras. Algebra. And that's when I decided I was going to leave. 
Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's the rigors of academia. You're you're really at the at the mercy of the advisory committees because they have a specialty in finance or a specialty in mathematics, and that's essentially all they want to do is get that next chapter of the next book. Um, and the the universities are known for that specific field of mathematics. So I think that's where you know why I like about finance too is is simply the the same merits of what we saw from mathematics. It's it's the purity and the proving of things and concepts and, and basic theorems and postulates, but then also marrying it with the practicality of hands-on um, applied math. And so that's essentially finance. There's a lot of theory behind things, but we know that the theory doesn't hold every day. There's a lot of inefficiencies. And so it's important to be able to be a practitioner as well. I, I've heard positive feedback on your intro music to The Sherman Show. Oh yeah, kind of the saxophone <laughs> thing, and I've, I've I've been told that there's a rumor that that's you playing because you did play alto uh, sax. Right? Well, well, I mean, I have to deny the rumor. Uh, but um, my parents uh, always listened to music, and um, I had an affinity for it. My dad really had a big um, uh, leaning towards jazz music, and so um, he liked the saxophone. And as a child, I played the alto saxophone. Um, I always liked all versions of the saxophone. In fact, I had the bias towards the higher octaves, the alto and the soprano, even. Oh, wow. um, yeah, which um, you know you need that tight amateur and stuff to be able to do that. And 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 strange enough, I did. But I kind of gave it up um, as I went into high school. And you can think about you know being a mathematician or, or a future mathematician uh, and being in band. I didn't want to be a nerd. You know, now I'd appreciate it, right? But uh, you know, you want you want the popularity contest. You're 14 years old, um, and I was afraid of being picked on. I was a scrawny little kid, I'm still kind of skinny and, and tall now. But now you've lost the weight. Now, yeah, I, w- <laughs> I was a little chunk here. Yeah, well, let's bring up the old ones. Thanks, Jeffrey, for the humility. Uh, but um, you know, the the thing is, is I want to play sports, and so that's where I, I really started to focus on playing baseball more. Uh, but I do I do still love jazz music, and uh, when we were talking about intro music, uh, I was uh, conversing with some folks about what to do, and I said, "How about an alto saxophone?" And just so happened that uh, one of our colleagues' friends has someone that plays very well. Uh, first couple riffs, I said, I love it. Let's expand out a little bit. And that's the intro music. Hmm. Not me, though. I can't so, take credit. Ever since I've known you, which is how long now? I don't even know. It's got to be about 14 years. Is that yeah. it? Yeah. it? Seems like longer. But at any rate, the uh, everyone will always call you Sherman. Yeah. You know, I got the same first name as you, but nobody ever calls me Gunlock. Right. Call- that's a great story. <laughs> and actually, that's the story people ask me about that, too. And they, they say, give me a great Jeffrey story. And and people wanted, you know, inner workings of Jeffrey Gunlock, not Jeffrey Sherman. And so I said, uh, when I first met Jeffrey Gunlock, you know, going to the elevators at TCW, you may not recall it. So you do have a good memory, but you may not recall. Um, so I'm a young, you know, 23, 24-year-old analyst, and, uh, maybe a little bit older at the time. And just riding up in the elevator with you one morning, I would just say, Jeffrey, to which you respond, Sherman. And I always thought it was funny because that's my name when you put the two together, Jeffrey and Sherman. And then one day, you know, out of, out of the norm of our, our really heavy dialogue we'd have between Jeffrey, Sherman, is that um, you said, Sherman, why do they call you Sherman? And I said, well, it's kind of from sports and stuff. People use our last name. And I said, didn't anyone ever call you Gunlock? And you said, no. no, no. Why would they do that? And it was never, like, what an idiotic question of you, Sherman, to ask me. Would they call you Gunlock? You know, I never even had a nickname, not once. My brothers never had a nickname for me. My friends never had a nickname for me. For the first time ever, someone's actually applied a nickname that might might actually stick. And that would and, be? Well, it has to do with my Twitter account. Okay. Because, as you know, I announced I opened up a Twitter account to 
throw up some ideas if I ever have any on the markets, but also to correct uh, lies in the news or bad bad reporting. And one guy, and I call it Truth Gunlock, that's the hashtag. And one guy said, I'm going to start calling you Jeffrey the Truth. The Truth. <laughs> like uh, Alan Iverson, yeah. AI the Truth, right? Um, and you know, so it, it's good we we're finally getting a nickname finally. But uh, I, I will say I have a many, uh, probably most are, but are correct call on you this. Sherman when you were like six years old? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, my aunt used to call me Jays because my middle name starts with a J. I mean, there's been all kinds of permutations, if you recall. Um, 30 years ago, there was a popular guy named Pee Wee Herman. So I had the Pee Wee Sherman for a long time. There's all these things, right? Which, uh, as a kid, you just want to die. Um, but uh, but that said, uh, we have a lot of Jeffries around here. Well, we only have one Jeffrey, as I like to, to say. It used, but, to, be, it used yeah. to seem like a lot, but I think it's yeah. only three. Uh, there's actually four. Four now. Four, four now. But uh, And then another guy on my team is Jeffrey Mayberry. But there's no, he's just Mayberry. He's just Mayberry. Right. And we all know him as Mayberry. I always so. called him Mayberry. Right. So there's just something about it. And I think, you know, Mayberry and I are about a year apart. So there's something about that cohort of, of popularity of names as well. So, uh. Well, when I, uh, when I named you Deputy CIO, uh, it was, as I explained to people, it wasn't so much of a promotion as it was a recognition of a role that seemed like you were already filling. How would you, dis- in what way would you say that your work has changed since before being WCIO and after? Yeah, well, I think a lot of things that's changed is the outside world listens more to what I say. They, they, I get less of what does Jeffrey say and what does Doubleline say. Um, and, um, and a lot of people accept that. But I've always just taken the initiative of just trying to be helpful. And, you know, I think back for the days we started Doubleline, I remember sitting with you and saying, what can I do? Just, you know, figure out what we can do best and how do we build this thing and how do we make it successful. And so I've never tried to just only do one single thing. I've always just said, where can we help? How can we improve the business? How can we improve our portfolio management process? How can we improve things? And so I think the thing is, is uh, just taking on the responsibility, taking on the ownership um, and just continuing to listen to our colleagues and making sure that we're continuing to build out in the areas we need to build out, giving the resources we need, uh, making sure that people feel they're being heard by all of us from uh, the portfolio management staff as well, and just trying to be a, a good leader. I think that's the big thing. And so um, I've always said I had a good mentor, and so uh, I'm trying Who to do that. Who would that be? Um, well, the first one was uh, a guy by the name of Claude Herb. I'll give him give him kudos here. But uh, obviously, I'm looking at you when I say that. But um, uh, I've had some good mentors through there. But uh, as I said, I've got one of the best in the business, and I might as well take advantage of it. So you have a group, and you kind of work together in almost a bullpen sort of environment uh, when you're when you're here with your team. Yeah. And Lau, you're on that team, right? That's right. So what's what's it like working with Sherman and in, in, what do you call it? It used to be called the L, but it's not L-shaped anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <We laughs> remember, it, I'm, uh, remember I'm sitting next to you, Sam, as you say this. That's right. right that's or it's right. loud because we have a lot of Sams too. Yeah, we have quite a few Sams here as well. But, um, I mean, it's interesting you ask. I, I'm a little bit older than Sherman. I got. Uh, you I look younger. I look younger. I feel younger. I probably <laughs> act younger. Wait, wait, as wait. Well, but, is, uh, is that a compliment to him or a slide of me? <laughs> you can see it both. It's a compliment to Lyle. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Sherman got his start, you said around 23. I think I started around 33 at uh, the old firm. So a little bit later start. But What did you t- do before then? Before then, I had a. Uh, I opened up a bar in. China, of all places. This is my first trip out there in Shanghai. I flew out on vacation initially. On you September. flew to Shanghai to open a bar? No, I flew to Shanghai for the first time ever on vacation, um, September 10th, 2001. 
Wow. So I wasn't able to come back as quickly as I wanted to. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a whole nother story. But yeah, so I had a bar. I sold advertising for publications for a while. And one day I just sat there and just said, you know, I don't feel like doing this anymore. I feel like doing something uh, a little bit more meaningful. And went back to grad school. From grad school, got an internship in your group at the old firm. And uh, One of the worst investments more. I ever saw was that the old firm, they started this crazy thing to, uh, they bought a Chinese beer company. And I, I think the Chinese never laughed so hard in their life because basically what we ended up, they ended up buying was a warehouse full of stale beer. And I think, I think <laughs> the thing went to zero, literally to zero in like 12 months. It was yeah. a complete loss. And I learned a lesson from that, which is don't buy things in foreign countries from the locals unless you have you know, a lot of intel. That uh, Intel would have helped me a long way as well, you know, when I opened up the bar out there. It was like the wild, wild west back there in 2001. And, you know, I, I think, I've, hear, I've heard, I haven't been back, that things have improved a lot. But uh, going back to the initial question about, you know, working with Sherman here, it's a little bit older. I feel like a proud parent almost. You know, I started, uh, you know, at first I came over um, from the non-agency research piece. Sherman must have just talked to you, asked where he could uh, help out and develop the business, and he asked me if I wanted to work with him. This is pretty early on, right? Yeah, um, first few months even of yeah, that one. within the first few months. And many, I guess most people probably aren't aware of it, but Sherman started out in commodities, actually. Mm -hmm. And when he came over, we started to to look at various ways that we could add value perhaps in the commodity space. That's really the only sector, Sherman, that you've uh, managed money in really on a day-to-day -day basis, that's right? R that's right, yeah, especially prior to here. And so... Because um, you, you come not so much from a por portfolio management sitting on a trading desk background, but more of a quantitative analyst background doing yeah. risk analysis and that's right yeah so my first job actually wasn't working for you that's why my industry experience isn't exactly the same although i did a lot of work on your portfolios outside of your group so i actually worked on the risk team at the old company and i started in a portfolio analytics capacity of using kind of the analytics to explain what's going on in markets and so i was actually assigned to the fixed income side which is where i learned about all of your products which is why I tried to jump onto your team ultimately there as well. And so um, when we talked about mentors and things, uh, the, the boss I had um, when I started working with you um, was very, very kind of uh, academic in nature. And so we did a lot of research articles. We looked at every single part of the market where we could add some value. And so that's where... For that's why your understanding is broader than most. And that's why it's a, such an easy choice for you to be WCIO. Yeah, well, thank you. And um, so we continue to do that. And if you look at uh, the team that we've built, including Sam, Sam uh, has a pretty, very strong analytical background, but he also has... Are we a talking about Lao here? We're talking about Lao. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I try to get a little too formal on these sometimes. Yeah, um, yeah. Lao is, as he's well known around here, amongst other nicknames. Uh, but um, you know, he has a very good economics background and things. He brings those things that I didn't have that I've learned over time. And then uh, we brought Mayberry over, who ran your trading desk on the, on the analytical side and risk analytics for a long time to really help beef up that. I have another quantitative analyst you can see the kind of trend here. We like quantitative people uh, for the fact that we like to use mathematical properties to do things. And not surprising, that fits well into a lot of fixed income constructs as well. So I think what I've learned over the years, especially with working with Lau, is how to use the macro to help guide some of these and have more discretion and thinking about uh, the big picture and not be wedded to the spreadsheet or wedded to the theory.
Lau, I hear that uh, Sherman, I at least you used to grill the people in the in your bullpen team on uh, what the employees' names were by going through the pictures of the oh. employee directory. It's, when did that start? I started, well, I mean, we, we went, well, we, we got doubled, to tripled, <laughs> yeah, 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 right yeah. around there, and you start, you, know, you feel bad at first, so you just don't recognize everybody. I mean, you recognize them by face, but you don't know their name. So it was really helpful when we, when we had our holiday parties to take the pictures <laughs> through the internal directory, put some names on, and just create these flashcards using people's uh, faces on there, and I'd, we'd just go around and quiz each other You're over still time. doing it? Probably too busy. <laughs> Gave up. Gave up. It's getting harder. What, what, percent, what percentage? We, we now have 205 employees, I think. Yeah. We started with 45. We have 205. Of course, our assets are a little bit bigger now, too. Yeah, I think we've added about a, about 107 billion or so from that first billion. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, yeah. But what what percentage of the the two hundred and five do you think you name you know? Uh, I'm I'm going to say ninety five right now. Ninety five people or percent? percent. That's okay. pretty hot. That's yeah. pretty hot. Yeah, I don't think I'm that good at this stage too. But also, you have to remember, Lau may not call them by the right name. He has a name for them, but it may not be actually their name. That's fair. Right. I think that's hey, fair. hey, you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, God, it sits outside of Sherman's office. Or at least the function. function I mentioned location. I mentioned earlier that my brother used to race motorcycles, uh, motocross. Did you ever race motorcycles? No, I, I've, I've ridden them, though. I've uh, I've been riding since college back in the days. and then actually, you have I've, a motorcycle now? Yeah, I've got uh, two now. Two? Well, one of them was a function of me getting older. I tried to do a 400-mile ride on a Ducati, and it just broke my back almost literally. So I ended up getting a Harley as well. So being the depreciating asset, I didn't want to sell the other one, so I just kept it and just... We make sure he wears a helmet. He wears his leather. We we check in with him when he's riding as well. You ever crashed? Uh, no. Well, yeah, actually I have. I have, so I've gotten that out of the way. I was going to knock on wood, but I had a, a small one. Well, it's good because when, when I tell motorcycle riders, it's just a matter of time. It it's, is. It's going to happen. It is. He actually, he actually sent me an email. I laid the bike down this morning. I'll be and like I, 20 minutes late. Right. He's, I'll be 20 minutes late. I'm like, what do you mean? Call me. You know, so, uh, but that's the kind of camaraderie we like to build around here. And I think that, that comes from the tight-knit culture that we started is that you know, uh, we, we hired a new employee recently and, um, you know, in the client service area. And we were, I was chatting with her actually yesterday before, uh, before the, the client review. And she was saying, I just love it here because of when I see everybody, it seems that they want to come to work. You guys all have interaction, you have banter, you, you work hard, you do all these things. And she's only been here a month. And I don't think she was buttering me up. I think you know she was well, being very genuine, and that's something we like to build in our my, teams. Too. My my uh, metric for uh, gauging uh, you know esprit de corps and employee happiness is turnover, and turnover here has got to be in the bottom decile, maybe the bottom percentile of what I've perceived other places. I mean, Lau, you haven't had another job outside of working with that's me right. in the investment business, Sherman. I, I have you not. Have, had. That's true. So many people here. When it comes to the trading room. And the portfolio management teams, it's almost literally true. It might even be literally true that nobody's ever quit. You know, we move people around. They look for a better opportunity. They develop in their careers. So they're not, they're not stuck in the same thing, but they stay with the team. Hey, maybe I could ask you a question real quick. You've been grilling us. Um, what is your uh, ultimate hiring threshold? I've heard some stories from candidates about what's your last kind of test and threshold for having someone come in. Oh, it's there's a uh, something I borrowed from my college days uh, when, in a, when I was rushing a fraternity. 
there was one guy that used what he called the, the, the T-shirt test. And that is, if I go across the Dartmouth Green and I see this fellow coming the other way, would I be proud or embarrassed that he's wearing the fraternity T-shirt? And there's, I, I'm not sure that's a, literally a, a, a requirement, but it factors into my thinking, um, at least indirectly, in terms of hiring people. And it's against, it goes with that cultural fit that you're talking about, that people like working here, they want to work together, and most people want to, to spend their career here. And I, I guess I'm looking for their, their, their uh, commitment and dedication and desire to work at Double Line, not just to fulfill a certain task, because those will evolve over time, but you know, to hire the right kind of people. Lau, you know, we, we uh, talked about Sherman was, is a baseball fan. Most people know that I'm a Bills fan, long-suffering, 17 years in a row without <laughs> making the playoffs. The, uh, uh, the only record the Bills have these days is they're missing the playoffs. What's your favorite sport? Favorite sport? I mean, I guess just by default, it's going to be uh, football. Having grown up and was born and raised in Wisconsin, you got to be a Packers Wisconsin. fan. That's right, yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, it was uh, the kind of thing where I, I got out as soon as I could, basically. So I You mean, were born there? I was born and raised. I uh, went to college there in Madison, Wisconsin, and then came out right after graduation. You mad? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Often ranked number one party school. Party in the school. That's right. At least within the top ten. If it falls within the out of the, the top two, we get kind now, of. What did you major in there? I majored in behavioral sciences and law, which basically meant that uh, it made you qualify to own a bar. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much. Yeah, I started out in engineering, and I was a little bit opposite than uh, than both of you actually. Where I just said, you know, it's it's a little bit more too structural for me. I want to be a little bit more free thinking. And uh, that led me to behavioral sciences and law, which I still don't know what it means today. It, it, it wasn't a pre-law degree. It wasn't a social science degree. It was something you, you, you cobbled together. Yeah, but that, that's one of the, the things about the Macross allocation team. We like all kinds. We like free thinkers. And um, we, we like people that challenge thought. And so I think, I think that is a testament to, you know, what will we try to do here at Double Line? You mentioned interviewing people. And uh, whenever I interview somebody... I end. I ask questions, and we talk. And at the end, I said, "You have questions for me." And the most common—it's incredibly common—the one question. It's almost like they came prepared and they read it in a book. They sort of say, "What's your vision for Double Line?" You know, and I say, "Well, we're a fully mature company. Uh, we're clearly at cruising altitude, and we're not really interested in being radically different from where we are today." You know, we build things out deliberately and gradually and carefully, and we're always going to be growing because. In this business, it's kind of like a shark. If you're not moving forward, you die. Right. And so we're always looking to do things, but um, to do so without turning into a trillion-dollar asset manager, which I have no interest. I remember uh, when we hired our head of operations, Patrick, yep. I came, went by his office after a couple of weeks, and I said, Patrick, how do you like it here? And he says, I love it. I love it. <laughs> and I said, uh, Why? And he goes, well, I was working for this big firm, you know, with hundreds of billions of AUM, and I got tired of wake up in the middle of the night and diving for the phone to see if something blew up in Singapore. <laughs> so I like having a, a manageable situation, particularly with the investment team in one location, working together and being able to, you know, have conversations on an ongoing basis. So uh, maybe we can wrap up the podcast by having you answer that question. What's your vision for Double I? You want to start? I, I, I saw it. Lau rejected that one, passed it along. <laughs> I mean, my vision of Double Line is to continue the success we've had, and that is be very measured, um, do things very deliberately, uh, make sure that we don't reject good ideas, 
right? If, if there's something interesting, um, we should be a player in that game. And for instance, we've had that with various strategies where people show us ideas and we have the expertise to do so, even though we hadn't done it before. And so it's just making sure that we keep that entrepreneurial spirit, but we don't do it recklessly or just do it because we feel we have to grow. And so it's to continue on the brand. Um, it's to continue to push this, to challenge each other to be better. Uh, it, it does sound a little corny at times to say that, but uh, my wife uh, asked me if you end up, you know, winning the lottery, which I don't play. Um, you know, mathematicians, we don't like those those uh, negative expected value games. Uh, but if you won it and you had all this money, what would you do the next day? And the answer was, I. Donate it to a museum. <laughs> well, so, uh, I, I, actually, th- that may not be out of the realm. However, it's I would go to work the next day. And it's what I like doing. I've always found these, this job interesting. I think it's a continuing evolution of solving puzzles. And uh, we're going to continue to do so. And so I think when people say, "Is you, how do you find the job you love? I don't know. I just do this job and I seem to like it. And it continues on. And uh, I, if it found me or I found it. But... No matter how it comes together, um, you know this is the place I like to be, and so I, I am double line too, and I want to continue that on. Well, maybe in a future uh, podcast you'll, or Sherman show, I should say, you'll actually deliver an interview of me. But hopefully, the <laughs> yeah. audience found this to be worthwhile. Right. Well, and, like uh, I kind of failed a great him. job with the Sherman show, <laughs> yeah, and th- a great job as deputy CIO. Thanks. Well, well, if you've been listening to these podcasts too, we'd like to remind you to rate them too. Um, so that way, they're out there on SoundCloud, they're on Google Play, they're on iTunes. And so uh, if you like what you're hearing, please let us know. We'd appreciate feedback as well. But before we let you go, Jeffrey, I know you're busy, but we have to do Lau's favorite part of the podcast. Okay, yeah. well, yeah. We can't wrap this up. Okay, this. we'll do it. All right. So just to make sure everyone's familiar with this, I say a word or a term, and then each, each person responds with a single word, hopefully. But we have allowance for more. And I'll start with Jeffrey Sherman, then I'll move to Jeffrey Gunlock and alternate after that. So Jeffrey Sherman, OPEC. Useless. Government spending. Too high. Bitcoin. Volatile. Twitter. Truth Gunlock. Buffalo Bills. (laughs) (laughs) That's a typical Um, reaction. Yeah, the typical reaction. um, Niners. Football. Bills. Good one. Inflation. Contained. Until it isn't. Interest rates. Low. The Fed. In trouble. Pizza Fridays. Awesome. Prime rib dinner. Not awesome. Chicken salads on Pizza Fridays. Instead of pizza. Completely inappropriate. Yield curve. Flat. VIX. Too low. Dark side of the moon. (laughs) Floyd. Well, it's Pink Floyd. Fake news. Uh, Everywhere. Millennials. Careful now. (laughs) (laughs) Important. It's true. It's an important demographic. Artist. Mondrian. And uh, sorry for my pronunci- mispronunciation, perhaps, of this, but it's a new word to me. Kov-fifi. Kov-fifi. Spelled C-O-V-F-E. El Presidente. Demographics. Aging. Baseball. Giants. And the final one, double line. B. 
baby. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Jeffrey. We appreciate you coming on the show today. And thanks for uh, turning the tables around on us. And again, uh, if you've been listening, you enjoy our podcast or you dislike it, please rate it one way or the other. Um, please let us have some feedback so we can keep bringing this hopefully entertaining material. Again, thanks, Lyle, for hosting with me today. And again, if you uh, have any feedback, go to DoubleLineInfo at DoubleLine.com. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2017, DoubleLine Capital.